Dave, welcome to the show. Today we're going to take a second and final look at the Australasia Satellite Forum, which we held in Sydney last week. Um, we're going to be taking a specific look at satellite in the enterprise market, and also a panel that looked at the state of the Australian space industry. But first up, we're going to take a look at the big news of the week, $2.8 billion deal from Telstra, a, uh, an agreement to sell 49% of the Infraco tower business to a consortium comprising the Future Fund, the Commonwealth Superannuation Corporation, and the Sun Super. Now, Telstra expects to return about half the proceeds to its shareholders, as well as investing $75 million of it in regional telecom infrastructure. The Towers business is the largest mobile tower infrastructure company in Australia. It has 8,200 towers in its portfolio. So we were on a conference call this week to find out all about it. We heard first up from Telstra Infraco CEO, Brendan Riley. Well, Telstra Infraco towers are some of the most strategic infrastructure assets in the industry and across the nation. And I think the valuation and the outcome today is a proof point of that. And also a proof point of all the foundational work that we've been um, diligently doing over the past couple of years. And I know many of you have been waiting uh, for this monetization event to come. Importantly, Telstra is our biggest customer and we're absolutely committed to delivering on all of our commitments uh, for Telstra to continue to lead in market and achieve all of the objectives it wants to achieve out of this agreement. While Infraco Towers is already delivering growth and efficiencies, I believe the new agreement will help us sustain our market leadership with new investments in infrastructure and services. We're very focused on providing best-in-class customer service and solutions to the entire industry and, importantly, leveraging new technology to improve our speed and efficiency. We welcome the relationship with our new consortium partners, uh, including the experience and disciplines which Morrison and Co. will bring as as managers. And I've been very impressed with the Morrison and Co. team in the weeks that we've been able to work with them. We intend to launch a new brand for Infraco Towers in the weeks ahead, which reflects the announcement and the long-term intent of the business, so we look forward to updating you on that. Um, As mentioned in the release, John Lipton will be the CEO of the new entity. Uh, John has been our Infraco Towers executive uh, since inception. I'll be chairing a six-person board which will include executives from Telstra, Morrison & Co. and the Future Fund. Uh, there are no closing conditions, and we're confident of driving a rapid close process, including the creation of all required entities and structures by the end of the first quarter of the financial year. Telstra CEO Andy Penn was then asked, what's the future for Infraco? Look, the short answer is today we're focusing on towers. Um, we're very, very pleased with the consortium, I think it's you know super high quality, um, and uh, you know we're very very happy with the partnership. And you know one of the things that I think they've brought to this process is a deep empathy and understanding about uh, the importance of our network leadership and and how they can work with us to make sure that we can capitalise on growing the value of the towers business and continuing to enhance our network leadership and. That's been um, incredibly important and, and helpful 
for us in, in selecting them uh, as a partner. Um, we're obviously going through the process, as you know, is putting in place, in place the broader corporate restructure, which we um, are aiming to get done by the end of the calendar year, but we haven't progressed any further discussions in relation to um, other aspects of our infrastructure assets at this um, point of time, but it's obviously something uh, that's ahead of us and we'll, we'll talk to the market in due course on that. But um, I'm just super happy with um, uh, the Future Fund and the consortium as a partner. That won't be the last news you'll hear about in the tower space for some time. Um, Optus are expected to release a short list of perhaps as many as 10 bidders for their towers business as soon as this weekend. Satellite Forum. Uh, we covered um, the forum in part in this podcast last week, but we, we didn't get through it all. And there's still uh, some interesting uh, highlights that I, I wanted to present in this edition of Commerce Day Live. First up, a panel on the enterprise space and satellite and the role that it plays in business markets. We had a, um, a pretty eclectic collection of operators on the panel. From Optus, Chelstra, Speedcast, AVCom, SG Engineering, iDirect, and MBNCO. And the moderator was Simon Ducks. We looked at uh, what were the hot trends in business satellite, and is there still an inbuilt bias against satellite from end users? Thanks, Simon. Uh, Nick Miller, Satellite Sales and Marketing at uh, Optus Satellite and Space Systems. Uh, biggest trend uh, we have at the moment, I, I think, is mobility services, uh, remote locations, of course, um, but uh, mobility is probably the biggest trend at the moment for us. Uh, Jason Ashton from NBN. Uh, I think the biggest trend is we're seeing satellite become more mainstream. So with the advent of technologies like software-defined networks, we're able to integrate satellite services into the mainstream corporate WAN environment, and we're also seeing you know, an increasing proliferation of satellite services for applications like Internet of Things and disaster recovery. Uh, you know, there's a host of different apps that are real-world applications, including you know, emergency services, where satellite is really making a difference today. Hi, this is Sandeep um, from uh, Telstra Enterprise. Um, and the biggest trend that we are seeing, obviously, as other panelists are saying, um, I see a lot of high throughput connectivity, so lots more data, a lot more speeds, and also an ask for lower latency. I think that's, that's the key uh, messages that we are getting from the customer at the moment. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Hamish Lee here from Speedcast. Uh, a quick shout-out to my colleague, Chris, who couldn't be here, so I'm filling in for him. Hi, Chris. WA. Um, the, I mean, there's plenty of trends going on. We've spoken about some of them today. Um, but I see, in, in, in conjunction with Jason's comment regarding mainstream, um, customers really just want flexibility in what they're, you know, what they're procuring. Um, I think for too long, satellite operators have said, you know, you've got to buy it this way, this amount of megahertz, and, and this is the way that you take it from us. But it, it just doesn't sit well with the customer anymore and it's taken a bit of a shake-up in the industry for other operators to come along and say, hey, you can buy it this way or you can buy it that way. We can make it more flexible for you. So for us at Speedcast, we're seeing you know, all those things mentioned already, mobility, 
Um, but it really is around the customer wanting and demanding flexibility. Uh, Michael Kratt, Managing Director at Avcom. The biggest trend that we're seeing at the moment is really our customers planning for multi-orbit uh, constellations and balancing their networks between um, high latency and low latency and using the right technology mix to get there. So. Uh, Richard Walsh from uh, iDirect. Um, many of you might know me from Newtech, but uh, Newtech and iDirect combined last year as we have a common owner called uh, ST Engineering in Singapore. Uh, what we're seeing as trends is all the, the kind of things that guys already mentioned, but uh, a lot of people want to do a lot of things with the same equipment. Instead of having to have multiple equipment, they want to have a multi-service type of platform, which is where we're, you know, we, our, our hubs are designed to be multi-service. So we, we meet that need by having a flexible architecture that can be used for more than one purpose. Excellent. Thanks, Richard. And uh, I'll start with you. Uh, is there a, still a bias against satellites in the business user market, or is that starting to change, and why do you think that is? I think that the, if, they can't get it, if they can't get it anywhere else, then they come to satellite. It's not like, you know, if they can get it cheaper terrestrially. So it's not like they're biased against satellite. It's just that there's more... Um, more other services available as wireless moves out in 5G, 4G. So I don't think they're hostile to satellite, but they've got a traditional fear that it's much more expensive. Yep. Uh, Michael? I think as an industry, we need to be better at promoting satellite. It's not so much that there's a bias against using it. It's an awareness about satellite and the role that it can play in a network. You know, I've been in rooms with submarine cable operators and they have no idea some of the capabilities that we can offer as satellite and how that can work in tandem uh, to help them to offer their services. So, Hamish? Yeah, but I think there is a bias. Um, call it what you will, but there is a reluctance absolutely to... You know, it's probably the wrong audience to say this. Um, having worked in different uh, companies and different transmission, transmission mechanisms. But, um, you know, it is always can't get there through terrestrial, can't get there through subsea, can't get there through fixed wireless, give me some satellite, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's going to cost you $3,000 a megahertz with the old days for a 15-year contract, <laughs> right? Um, as I spoke about before, things are changing, though. You know, there absolutely is, and that was traditionally because satellite was expensive, the latencies were long. I think with MEOs coming on, certainly, you know, it's fibre to the sky, it's fantastic. Yeah. All of a sudden, satellite brings a whole new, different uh, way of thinking. Cloud edge computing can, can work well uh, over MEOs. And obviously, we're going to see that with, with the LEOs coming on board. So it's kind of exciting. So that bias absolutely will shift. I think the ubiquity of, of satellite, suddenly it's like, well, I can get it anywhere, not just a cable landing station where the backhaul is going to cost me bucket loads of money to get two kilometres down the road because that's what the cable landing station and the operator who built the system is going to charge me. I've got ubiquitous coverage everywhere, 150 megabits per second. You know, it really is, uh, I think it's going to shift. Uh, Sandeep, you guys have got one of the biggest uh, IoT networks in Australia uh, on terrestrial. Uh, so obviously there's some crossover there. What are you seeing? 
Look, so, <clears throat> I mean, just talking about bias first, you know, so the bias, you know, in certain organizations like ours, which, you know, which are huge and, and, and they're not known for satellite only, they're known for other things, there's an, even an internal bias sometimes. But where I see the focus changing and I see, you know, pe- you know, I've got colleagues sitting who sell satellite, who traditionally probably never sold satellite before and they love it now. So, you know, there is a, there is a, a, a negative bias and then there's a positive bias that's happening within, within the company probably happening with next yeah. company as well uh, and in, in terms of IOT yes you know I, I think the mindset for the C level is you know these things are proven they work maybe satellite comes second in their mind mm-hmm. but as long as you educate them properly that's that's what we are doing now you know we are constantly educating our internal bias first and 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 they then now see there is a probably a growth you know that can happen in IOT industry through satellite there's so many types of satellites and and we are undertaking a lot of studies now to sort of present that to our board and say hey these things are now going to be viable. You know, this is not a technology of past. This is technology of present and and future. Jason, yeah, look, I think I agree with Sandeep. I mean, it's it's interesting. I look at satellite as just another wireless technology. And I know that's a bit offensive to some people in the room, but my background's more in wireless than satellite. And you know, I think about the evolution of wireless technologies and where we are today <coughs> on the verge of you know ubiquitous five G coverage. And I think about where we were, say, 20 years ago in, in wireless, and you know the performance was was not great. And 3G, the first generation of 3G, you know there were some concerns with the performance that we were seeing. But today, satellite has is kind of riding on the coattails of what people's perceptions around wireless technology is capable of. Yeah. And there's been, you know, obviously a huge amount of, um, you know, over the last couple of years, a lot of excitement about the developments, the innovation that's coming in satellite. And I think that that's good for us from a market perspective because it's educating end users that using satellite, integrating it into your network, regardless of whether it's wireless or fixed broadband or mobile or satellite, it doesn't really matter as long yeah. as it gets the job done. You know, businesses just want an outcome. They just want services to be delivered. And satellite has proven to be a viable technology. And, you know, and all of the publicity is helping get that message out to the consumers. Yeah. And Nick, being the biggest domestic uh, satellite operator? Yeah, I, th- I think education is a key piece um, to the customers. We are having a lot more tech-savvy and satellite-savvy customers um, coming to us these days. So that they're even doing their own installations. So it's, it's a matter of just handing them the keys and saying, go do your own job. And so we're seeing a lot of that. And so the education piece is quite critical. But the flexibility which Hamish raised as well, I think, is quite critical. And the capability that is coming on board um, provides a, a different view on what could be achieved in the past. Uh, so that the ability to actually turn on capacity at a certain point in time for a certain amount of time, for example, in a construction camp, if they're doing a mine site and you only need capacity for six months of the year before either they build in the, the wireless link or build the fibre cable or something like that, and then it sits in there as a backup solution anyway. And we've been testing some offshore rigs in that, in that uh, capacity as well, uh, where the, basically the fibre is taken down for a couple of weeks and the, and the, uh, the satellite then runs the main operations. Mm-hmm. And these operations are quite critical in their businesses. And we'll get to this point a bit later maybe, but um, the, the availability is quite important because in some cases, if they're down for a day, it can cost them a million dollars. And I'm talking like big corporates, BHPs of the world, that sort of thing. So if there's a mine site or a, a, a gas, oil and gas site and it's not operational for, for a day, it can cost a million dollars. And that's for OHS reasons. And so there's all those sort of components coming to it in terms of the, the bias that is changing under the changing landscape. There is a bias, yes, uh, but it, I think it's changing as well. finished up the Australasia Satellite Forum with a panel I put together based around a quite low-profile inquiry that's taking place in Canberra at the moment into the space industry. Until last week, it was chaired by Barnaby Joyce, 
but then he went and became Deputy Prime Minister, so I'm not quite sure what it's, the status is with the chairmanship of that committee. Um, but nevertheless, it's been a fantastic opportunity for Australia's space sector to put their views forward on, on such matters as the space agency, the role of government as an investor and as a buyer of satellite services and all, all manner of different issues uh, pertaining to uh, the sector. So we got together um, uh, five um, representatives of companies who we thought made the most interesting submissions, asked a whole bunch of questions um, pertaining to their submissions. But the, the, the part of the panel I wanted to highlight was the role of the Australia Space Agency formed to great fanfare a number of years ago, but there's a general perception that it, it's under-resourced. So we wanted to explore um, that notion and, uh, generally speaking, the role of government in the sector. Mark Ramsey from CETL giving his thoughts. The Space Agency is probably getting close to three years now, I think, so off to a, a pretty flying start. Um, and I think from the outside, we can't underestimate the challenge of starting a brand new federal agency. I'm sure there's been a lot of work involved there. Um, I think it's got its uh, social licence to operate. Um, and I think everyone in the sector, we probably underestimated the, the catalyzing moment that the formation and announcement of the agency would cause. It certainly created an immense amount of buzz and excitement um, across the sector. Is it underfunded? Of course, the answer is always yes. Um, to put it into perspective, though, and I think um, the SIA submission to the parliamentary inquiry put it well that we're sort of just above Mexico and just below Indonesia on a per capita basis, um, putting us pretty low in the sort of G20 economies. Um, and probably to George's heritage, I think Canada invests around five times in civilian space what Australia does. Um, so I guess from a few of those perspectives, I would suggest it's it's underfunded. Um, Following that and something we put in our submission is I think the future is also that we need to really get um, deep into a national space program uh, to be investing in space um, solutions to national problems um, and therefore the resource that goes into that really should be driving economic and social benefit for the nation and not be seen as tipping money into a, an empty box. George Dyke from Symbios. Uh, yeah, I mean, interesting point, Mark, about the international comparables. And I, I think even in well-funded uh, agencies in other countries would say they would like some more money. So, of course, yeah, the answer is always more. Um, but, you know, from our, our experience, I think uh, the Australian Space Agency has a little ways to go until it hits that size and shape. I think we need a bit of investment in capacity within the agency and really <clears throat> with the goal of being able to run projects and eventually programs that are really outcome driven. And I think that goes a bit towards your national priorities. So rather than, um, you know, supporting one-off grants and things like that, we really need an operational ongoing funding basis that we can use to invest um, and push, I think, industry forward. That gives industry some certainty uh, that they can invest against. Um, and it means governments can, on a regular basis, take on some of those higher risk activities that is the role of government um, and ultimately develop, you know, I think a good industry ecosystem as a result of those sustained projects and programs. So that's what we'd like to see is more sustained funding and more, um, I guess, strategy and less responsiveness in terms of grants and things like that.
Carly Scott from Equatorial Launch Australia. Thanks very much for handing the microphone over. Yeah, the quickest answer is to say you, you always want the agency to have more resourcing and invest, you know, invest that then into industry and our businesses. Um, but taking another lens onto that, um, I think the question for a, that, that I look to as well is whether the Australian Space Agency is the only agency that should be resourced for this. Now, we know that you know close to 50 nations have government space budgets, um, nine over $1 billion. So there's a call for how much money do you put into space and looking then at the impact that that investment has and, and they're diverse across those economic benefits, including employment, um, technological and science excellence, innovation. So those benefits are there, but that question around resourcing really for me drives that question for Australia at the moment around how we're resourcing various departments and then coordinating those departments so that the space industry locally can service the international economy much more efficiently. Um, so that collaboration across um, agencies on national infrastructure and assets, both on Earth and in space, linked activities across major priority areas, has been commented on really well um, in a recent article in ASPE by Beck Shrimpton, but also in the US where they are reporting into how they make that increased investment into assets. Um, and as a spaceport, obviously, we're very interested in that. But also linking through to those trade and other agreements that we have, technological safeguard agreements, things that open the doors up for industry and government to work well together, but for those different agencies to work well together. So bringing that back into a little package, the answer that I, I bring to that is, yes, I'd love to see more resourcing that flows straight into industry development and efficient industry development, um, but certainly I'd like to see that coordinated across multiple agencies to see the full opportunity of what Australia, our satellite sector and space sector more broadly can offer. Bill Barrett from Asia-Pacific Aerospace Consultants. I think when you um, take a look at the, the nature of the space industry and, you know, is it resourced well enough, it really depends on the size of your ambitions. And if you go back to um, the original ERG report that recommended the space agency being put together and, and, and formed. Um, you, the recommendation was something of a funding level of somewhere between 300 million and 400 million a year. Um, and to do, then that would lead to the outcomes of the trebling of the, um, the, the Australian space economy by the end of, the, uh, end of 2030 and an and additional 20,000 jobs. The government kept the KPIs but they only gave it one-tenth of the revenue. So uh, that doesn't seem like a great recipe for success. Um, having said that, though, as um, a lot of us, you know, perhaps did not recognize at the start, it's a challenge to set up a new organization, a new agency within, within any place, you know, whether you're a startup, whether you're doing a new division within an organization. And so to do something new in the government, I think we, we um, all have underestimated a little bit the challenges that that entails. And certainly when you get a go decision in a budget in May and you stand up on the 1st of July, that's tough. Um, and initially, everyone had to be had to come in from the public servant. You simply needed to be from the public service already in order to actually staff the place up and get turn on the lights and get the wheels turning. So, 
Um, that also meant that there wasn't a lot of space expertise initially. And so you, you have to walk before you can run. And, and so, frankly, I think the space agency has done very well with the level of resourcing that they've had, with the capability that they've had, and in the short time frame they've had. One of the things that's, that's been very clear to a lot of us in the industry and very puzzling for, for those of us who don't really understand government very well is that <laughs> there has been such a pent-up ground <clears throat> swell of interest in the public within Australia. And yet for years and years and years, starting way back in the, in the, in the 50s when Australia was approached by Britain to use Woomera as a testing ground, the Australian politicians on both of, of all persuasions never really saw much benefit in space. In fact, they saw it as a big black hole and hey, we just can't really afford this. So it was always about only do this if somebody else can pay for it. Um, we're, we're really not going to tip too much money into that bucket. What they underestimated and what has always puzzled me as to why is just the amount of enthusiasm that Australia has and the fact that as a spread out nation, Australia is one of the ideal places to utilize satellite technologies, be it SATCOMs, be it Earth observation, certainly position navigation and timing. All of those key factors as well as a lot of the great universities we have in these countries, this country that are actually putting out very sophisticated, uh, very well-trained individuals who are snapped up when they can get visas to go elsewhere in the space industry. So there has been this groundswell, and that's a lot of the reporting that we've done uh, at APAC at the time. We've done, we did three major studies for the, um, the uh, um, Department of Industry in the, in the 2010s, so 2010, 2011, 2016, characterizing the Australian space sector. And the 2016 one was the only one that was ever released publicly, but that came up with all the headline numbers. Four billion in, in annual revenue, 10,000 staff spread across every state and territory. Every industry sector of the Australian economy uses space in some way. That message had not been getting through to politicians, and that really woke things up and started the debate. And so there, what, what is, what, one way to look at this is that people have recognized that that has been there all along, also, you have the dynamics of the space industry changing, where you did have lower cost to space, lower cost to build satellites, largely based on the mobile phone revolution. And, and so you had this nexus coming together where, yes, it was a prime time to start again. Um, one of the things that I would like to point out to everybody in the room is that the space agency is not what I would call fully established. The original proposal was to have a statutory authority. It is not yet that. Now, in theory, around this time, they were supposed to have the review to, to look at that. The, um, you could say perhaps this House committee, um, subcommittee that, that did the, um, the consultations, is perhaps the first step or one part of that. So this could lead towards that. And I know many of the submissions actually talked about that, that this should be a statutory body. When it does that, it's got a lot more freedom to hire um, rather than just pulling from within the public service, which is one of the challenges that the former director of the uh, Australian Space Office said was always one of the big issues. Public service rotating through, um, they get trained up, but then they move on to someplace else, where a statutory body's got the ability to retain that staff in a slightly different way. And Troy McCann, CEO of Moonshot. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think I agree with almost everything that everybody's said so far. So, but um, I think, uh, so, so echoing like what everybody else has said, acknowledging that they essentially have done an incredible job. You know, they, they are a startup as well. 
um, they have had to work out, okay, we've got a small budget, we have to grow a new kind of space agency where there's not really much of a model around the world to say, okay, here's a playbook as to what to do um, for our exact, you know, what we need to do here in Australia. They've had a, had a pretty tough uh, challenge ahead of them and they've done really well, I think. But I think um, there are some telltale signs that if you're looking for, you know, do they have enough money to do what they really need to do? And for me, that comes to things like cost recovery. So the big, for those who don't know, there's a discussion going on at the moment around, okay, should there be what I would call taxes put on certain aspects of the space sector um, where they should pay for the space agency to do services like issuing licenses and things like this? Um, to me, that tells me, well, if we're trying to subsidise to grow an industry, but then at the same time, on the other hand, we're trying to say, give us some money back, they don't have the resources that they need to do what they need to do. So maybe we need to give them a, a bit of extra money. There's also other things like the Trailblazer program, which I think is absolutely fantastic. I think it's incredible. You know, we need to have more of those, uh, those bigger space missions. We need something to sort of come around and say, okay, this is what Australia is going to do and this is how we're going to mobilise everything. Uh, but so there's three tracks to Trailblazer, uh, if I can remember correctly. So it's Moon to Mars uh, initiative. It's the, there's a telecommunications one. There is so mining and I can't remember the third one at the moment. But Space medicine. Space medicine, that's right. Uh, and so as these uh, alliances form and they say, cool, let's collaborate, let's form a supply chain, let's you know, address these challenges, uh, at some point the space agency is going to say, okay, we're only going to choose one of you. Not one that's going to do space medicine amongst a group that are doing space medicine or one that's going to do lunar uh, resources that are doing that. They're going to just choose one of those tracks. And so there's an entire supply chain that we're asking people to form, we're asking investors to put money into it, uh, people to, to dedicate their lives to growing companies that we're actually just going to say, actually, no, that we're just going to cut that out. And so that to me as well says, well, instead of $50 million for one, we need to really have at least $150 million to get all three of those going. If, if they're all valuable, we need to support them all. So I think that the space agency really does need some more resources. I do think that things like the parliamentary inquiry, and uh, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the results of that uh, and, and what that might look like in the budget next year. Um, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident it should look pretty good, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I think in general, for me, the space agency, you know, we, we live in a really interesting time with space because it is becoming increasingly commercial. Um, you know, the average person can, you know, for, can, can work out, okay, what do I need to do to, get to, to prove that there's a business model I can build a, a, a satellite in my garage uh, and to, you know, for less than the cost of an investment property, for a tenth of the cost of investment property, you can launch that into space and start a real space business. Um, so to some extent... We are going to see, and we already have before the space agency was around, we were getting some space companies that were popping up. Um, and if the space agency, for whatever reason, doesn't turn into a real agency, if it stays at just an office is what it really is, um, or whatever, we will see these companies pop up as well. But if we want Australia to have a national capability that is, in competitive, that is competitive internationally, then we need to provide, you know, put the capital into the industry. We need to create a broad base of support to make sure that investors say, cool, okay, private investors are happy to put more money in. Whether that's some larger companies that are saying, yep, cool, we'll build new businesses here. Whether that's uh, private equity saying, yep, cool, we'll take some extra risks because the government are going to go in on board with that as well. And we're not competing with government funding. We're actually working together with it. Um, but that's how we can say, okay, how can we make sure that Australia can grow an ecosystem that is internationally competitive so that we have more than just a few handful of companies that are doing this, these space activities? Okay, that's uh, Troy McCann, the CEO of Moonshot. And with that, that's the end of Comms Day Live for this week. Now, with the lockdown in Sydney, we're ultra-restricted in our operations right now. We may or may not publish a podcast next week, depending on how things roll. 
um, but we'll definitely be back the week after. So thanks for joining us today. Just beat it.